0: Hi there, and welcome to season one of But Seriously the Cancer podcast. My name is Bert Scholl. I'm a two time cancer survivor, a cancer survivorship coach, and the creator and host of But Seriously the Cancer podcast. To learn more about my coaching services, go to bertscholl.com. That's B-E-R-T-S-C-H-O-L-L.com. We are currently searching for funding from a foundation or through advertising. In the meantime, this podcast is funded through a combination of community support and my own personal contributions. If you would like to contribute to the podcast so we can continue to bring more episodes to you and to people around the world, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash but seriously the cancer podcast. And thank you so much for all you do. Today's guest is Jason Hungerford. Jason is the Vice President for the Board of Directors of the Cancer Resource Center of the Finger Lakes and the co-founder of the Colorectal Support Group as well as the Young Adult Support Group, now named Beth's Group, in memory of his co-founder, Beth Burnell. Jason has been cancer-free for 10 years. Jason, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's great to have you here. So begin by telling everyone When were you diagnosed
1: and what were you diagnosed with? So I was diagnosed in 2010, two weeks after turning 33 years old. And I was diagnosed with colorectal cancer.
0: Colorectal cancer. And what was the uh, staging?
1: I was stage 2A.
0: Stage 2A. So what does stage 2A mean?
1: Stage 2A is it has penetrated one of the layers of the the wall of the colon and, and rectum but not all the way through mm-hmm. is my best layman's understanding of stage two A. there you go <laughs> and so the treatment regimen is different depending on what stage of cancer you have and It's actually also different depending on whether it's classified as colon or rectal. And although it's the same cancer, the placement really matters. And when I was first diagnosed, all the doctors that I had met with had said colon cancer. Then it wasn't until after my surgery and after I met with the oncologist that he informed me that actually it was rectal cancer. I missed the cutoff by literally half a centimeter. So... If it had been stage 2A colon cancer, my treatment would have been different than my stage 2A rectal cancer. Does that make sense?
0: Yes. So what I'm hearing you say is the half a centimeter required them to do some rectum removal. Correct. Versus just colon removal. That's correct. And for the people who are listening, the rectum is where the stool goes to be held until we find a convenient time to go to the bathroom. That is correct. yeah, so when you have colon cancer, they can remove part of your colon. And from my understanding, you know, the, the the rectum function is mostly unaffected. But since they had to cut into some of your rectum, that affected the way you move your bowels.
1: That's correct. So the rectum has uh, serves two purposes. One, as you discussed, storage of the stool. And the second function is actually to help you eliminate... Uh, the stool, so it gives you that that sort of internal push to to eliminate Ooh. your bowels and i 'm not unique in in other um, people who 've had rectal cancer. You end up with what the doctors call a non compliant rectum, which basically your rectum doesn 't want to do either of the two functions it doesn 't want to store the stool and it doesn 't want to help you eliminate it once you' once you 've started to to go to the bathroom, which is it 's sort of this this dichotomy that, that doesn't doesn't match up. I mean it's counterproductive to each other. So I have to go to the bathroom frequently, but once I try to go to the bathroom, I I don't have the muscle strength to actually eliminate fully and completely.
0: Ah. So even though you push, the rectum still doesn't have the would it be the muscle structure?
1: So I I think it's the combination of the the muscles basically f- through surgery you're you're cutting through the muscles the nerves and and then you're connecting two pieces of your body that weren't connected before so they they cut off in my case I had about six inches of my body removed about an inch from my upper rectum and about five inches from my lower colon and okay. so the end of my colon was reattached to the, the new end of my rectum, but those ends were not connected before they they had this piece taken out and so so those two pieces had to learn how to uh, communicate with each other again and um, it 's taken a long time to, to i mean i 'm now ten years out thankfully, but it took about four years before i I felt like my body was starting to get used to. That new normal and four years is a long time, and and I, I'm to a point now where I feel pretty pretty stable with the way my body works, and 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 you know it's definitely not the way it was before cancer, but it's it's now at a point where um, it's manageable, and um and you know the the frequency of having to go to the bathroom is is caused by two things: one, you have a shorter colon. So the length of time that it takes the stool to, to get through all the functions of the colon does um, is shorter. And then I have less of a rectum, so I have less storage space. Um, so my body triggers the response of, hey, you need to go to the bathroom more frequently.
0: Mm. Are there other ways that it's different from the time when you had a full functioning rectum?
1: Only to, only to say like... Shitting is like a primary function of my life now, where, <laughs> where it's like before, you know, yes, it's a daily function or whatever that everyone has mm-hmm. to do, but it's not something you really think about. It's not really something that you pay attention to. And for the last 10 years, it has been, on many days, my my primary thought. It's, it's really at the forefront of, of my brain. And my planning of activities centers around timing of eating and timing of when I might need the bathroom. So, like, I remember in the first couple of years after after my surgery and after my treatment, my husband and I would want to maybe go to a, a dinner and a movie. Well, we couldn't do dinner and a movie. We could, we could do a dinner or a movie because at one of those th- times, I would need a bathroom and I would need it for a long time because, um, again... The rectum doesn't want to help me eliminate, so I could easily be in the bathroom for about an hour. And, you know, that's not much of a life when you're, when you're having to go to the bathroom multiple times a day for long periods of time. And again, thankfully, now I'm at a point where it's not as bad as it once was.
0: Yeah, that's a huge change.
1: Yeah, it, it's a huge change from what it was pre-cancer, definitely. And, and it's even a huge change from how my body was, you know, in the first four years after cancer. But that huge change didn't come suddenly, the, the huge change in, in the last 10 years. It's been slow going for my body to heal and for me to get used to that new normal.
0: So it sounds like the frequency of bathroom use is still greater than what it once was, but it's less than it was The first few years, the first four years out of surgery.
1: That's correct. So just to put some numbers on it. So after surgery, I did uh, five and a half weeks of radiation along with oral chemotherapy. And then there was about a six-week break. And then I did an additional four months of oral chemotherapy. And oral chemotherapy is just, I, I took a pill instead of having the Poison of chemotherapy infused into my veins. So during radiation, that was probably the worst time. I was going to the bathroom literally between 20 and 40 times a day.
0: And this was the pre surgery radiation, yeah?
1: No, so I had surgery first. Okay. Yeah.
0: yeah. Okay, I had pre surgery chemo and radiation, you know, the five and a half week uh, regimen. And uh, oh my goodness, that was the worst part of the treatment. Yeah, hands down, the incredible bloating, the constant diarrhea, and mm-hmm. you know, in my case, the you know, for both of us, we had a uh, rectal cancer, and we both had exposed tumors. In my case, the tumor was exposed, you know, with the constant diarrhea and the pain of having, you know, the sunburned anus. <laughs> yeah. from the radiation <laughs> and passing diarrhea over that constantly. Yeah, that was uh. I mean, I'm not diminishing <laughs> your, your experience by any means, but it's just, you know, I mean, they're both terrible.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. Radiation was definitely the worst part of the treatment for all of the reasons you just stated. And um, in addition to, you know, feeling exhausted and, and being nauseous all the time, all, you know, all the things that you typically think of uh, people going through cancer treatment... But on top of that, you know, you you have this constant stream of diarrhea that just will not end because that's the part of your body that's being radiated, and um, and it's 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 painful. It's it's um, yeah. You you wonder how you are ever going to get through it, and but you do. Yeah. So I I was going like twenty to forty times a day. Um, and so I I had surgery before my radiation and in hindsight I, I sort of wish I had the radiation first and then surgery. Um there okay. are some there's some additional benefits to that and and one of those being that you know radiation really damages the body parts and if you if your situation is conducive for a pre-surgery radiation it shrinks the tumor before surgery, so you have less to cut out, and then the surgeon can actually cut out the damaged tissue that has been damaged by radiation. Now, I may not be able to cut out 100% of, of the radiation damage because even though the radiation is targeted, it still it, it goes through your body. It doesn't, it doesn't hit the area and then stop. It, it goes <laughs> stop. through the entire body, Right. So you can uh, basically everything in the pelvic region is is damaged. So we're talking about different sexual function, uh, kidneys are damaged, your bladder is damaged. All, all those, all that area is is just damaged. But the the surgeon can actually cut out the damaged tissue from the colon and the rectum, and for a lot of people, it gives them a better um, better quality of life afterwards. So. I did not have that. I had I had surgery first, so I had my stuff cut out first, and then I had radiation, which which means I pretty much have to live with those damaged body parts.
0: So there's no option to go back and have surgery and have more damaged body parts removed.
1: Well, I suppose not like, that one would want to. But <laughs> right, right. So that that's the big thing. I, I think I, I mean I suppose I could ask for those uh, body parts to be removed, but then we're talking about even less of a colon and even less of a rectum and even less of uh, quality of life. So um, for me, I think I'll just stick with what I've got and, and be grateful. Yeah. I
0: think a lot of us share that uh, point of view. Like I have a colostomy now. Mm-hmm. Now, if medical science were to find a way to do a rectum transplant, you know, I don't think I would want to go through the surgery again and then have to have it learn to function again. I have a colostomy. Every morning I irrigate. And for those of you who are listening, I basically, I give myself an enema first thing in the morning. It fills the bowel. The bowel then responds over a 45-minute period of emptying itself. And then I have emptied my bowel for the day. And, you know, on occasion, you know, there'll be some uh, movement. But for the most part, I don't even think about moving my bowels for the rest of the day. It's that's
1: convenient. <laughs> it does sound that way. I don't I don't know if that's something I would I would wish upon myself, but it does I, I'm not gonna lie, it does have some appeal.
0: Yeah, so for those of you listening, Jason and I live in the same town and we are in a colorectal support group. And so that gives you a little background for what I'm about to say to Jason, which is yeah, when I hear a lot of you speaking in the room, there's times I'm listening. You know, there's so many of us that I don't chime in all the time. I'll just, you know, I want to be mindful of time and, you know, giving everyone an opportunity to speak and share. But I will think to myself, like, wow, my life sounds easier with a colostomy. And there are definitely aspects of my life that aren't easier. Like when I go swimming. Sure. Jason, it took me Years to be comfortable going to the beach, going to the lake, the ocean, a water park, and having people see my pouch. Right. Because they look at my pouch, and if they know what it is, the first thing they think is poop. Right. (laughs) Now, you and I are both colorectal survivors. We got into this conversation. It was about 30 seconds you're talking about poop. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) 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 Because that's a huge... Uh, life change and and it makes such a you know um an impact on us that that's, that's what, it's what it 's a big part of what our life is about, just like you said right, and I hear you saying it's like these are the changes you 've endured, and this is as far as you want to go you don 't want to go have, you don 't want to have more surgery you don't want to take on a whole new way of moving your bowels you 've kind of you found your your balance, it sounds like you found your your placement with this,
1: yeah, I think so, and even my gastroenterologist. Said that you know there there may be things that we could do to make it even better. There are things um, like different physical therapy things that 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 can be done in that region that some people may benefit from. And I've considered it. I've gotten referrals to two different places for it. And mentally, I just haven't gotten there. I I, I I'm 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 at this comfortable plateau. And and even though there's this promise of um, having it improve more, I I, don't, I I can't even explain it. I can't explain the, the mental hurdle that that is. It's, it's part of me just wants to be done with with it all and just be like, you know, this is just the way it is, and it's not perfect, but I can live with it. But I think, like you said, having to to, to relearn. Something and having your body to to readjust to something, even even if it is for a greater good, and I'm in the end going to like it even better. Mentally, I'm just I'm not ready for that yet, and and I may never.
0: Yeah, it's, uh, it's hard to explain a major surgery to a person who hasn't had a major surgery. It affects the body, the mind, the spirit profoundly. Definitely. And there's a lot I don't remember about it, but what I do remember is my emotional response to it and, and, and what it took day by day, sometimes hour by hour to get through it. And the months that followed of my abdominal wall stiffening. And because I had my rectum and anus removed, when I would sit, there was you know, certain pairs of pants where like you know, a pair of Levi's with the stitching in the center would just push up into where the um, stitches were it was so uncomfortable and you know i'm adjusting myself in a chair not to become a little more comfortable but so whatever material in the chair isn't pushing up against where the stitches were and for years i would stand up and my abdominal wall would not release at the Mm -hmm. rate the rest of my body would and i would have to move slowly otherwise it would just pull painfully due to the stiffness
1: yeah Mm -hmm how long did it take you before you your body sort of relearned how to how to do that movement of just getting out of a chair
0: i think it had to be over a year i mean getting i learned to get up slowly again this was in 2008 when i had the surgery so it was almost 12 years ago but i do remember you know there's the really slow getting up you know from the surgery and then there's you know 6 months out still getting up slowly and allowing the abdominal wall time to relax uh you know a year you know there's still being stiffness if I sit long enough if I sat long enough you know it I don't know Jason it had to be over a year maybe less than 2
1: And do you still sort of have to mentally think about it
0: It doesn't happen anymore
1: Yeah So I think I think those those little things that people don't realize, you know, after, after you have sort of externally recovered from your surgery and, and you're getting back into life and you're reengaging with your, your social circles with work and friends and family, they, they see you, they see you that, Oh, you're, you're all better. Life, life goes on, but life doesn't go on. And, and I'm so glad that you mentioned the, the emotional uh, and the, the, the mental uh, toll that, that surgery takes on your psyche. I mean, I I wouldn't have understood it before my surgery. I would have thought, you know, it's cancer. You don't, you don't want this cancer in you. Of course, you're going to have it taken out, but there is an emotional, a surprising emotional attachment to to having a body part removed. A part of you is now gone. And, and I don't think I fully appreciated that until a number of years later, I had to have a, a small suspicious looking mole removed from my back. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's a very quick thing that's done in the dermatologist's office. You know, she numbs the back and she just sort of takes a slice of your skin and patches it up and it's all good to go. I was laying face down as she was doing this and I, I was crying Mm -hmm. and I, I, not from pain, but just this, it was, it was a, almost a PTSD reaction. Here I am again on a table and someone is cutting a part of me and removing it and and it was not it was not something i was thinking about you know as i was getting on the table or anything it was it was literally as i could feel the instruments on my body and and it was just a um it was a reflexive reaction and i was i was surprised i was surprised that when she was done, I was in tears. Um. For for just a little little, like just an eighth of an inch of skin gone, and I was in All tears. Yeah. And I was tears, and, and it was just it was surprising to me. So so I appreciate you mentioning that that surgery can have that sort of that that emotional and psychological uh, impact on you that you don't even. Don't even know that it's there until perhaps years later. And, and if you're fortunate enough, you know it's there much sooner because I think you can then deal with it much sooner and sort of process it much sooner.
0: Well, you're addressing the memory that arises when you're in a circumstance that's similar to it. When you had that bit of tissue removed from your back, you reminded me of the abscess that I had You know, a number of weeks after my surgery, there was, you know, fluid, pus, you know, building up in the surgery area. So on the same day, I went in, uh, the nurse practitioner who worked for my surgeon, she removed all the staples. And she told me that they were going to have to stick a needle into uh, my behind, I guess. I'm not even sure. I don't remember. It's been a while ago. But, you know, and to put a long needle in there and, and with, you know, empty the abscess. And I said, I am going to need some kind of sedative for that. And she said, oh yeah, I could see the way you were responding. Just by the way you're responding to having the staples removed, uh, that's obvious. And so I'm laying down on the table and they gave me, they found a cocktail of medications. They couldn't, I don't recall why they couldn't just put me out but I remember them finding a cocktail of medications to give me, to sedate me. And any time they touched my backside, I immediately flinched. I mean, Jason, it was like, I mean, it, it was laughable looking from right now, you know, except you and I are, are actually talking about how how, uh, how, shocking and upsetting it can be to return to any kind of uh, surgery. I mean, this certainly wasn't a surgery, it was just a procedure, but I was time they touched me, you know multiple times, they just go and move something and touch me, and, th- and they were waiting for the medication to take in, and I just kept reacting and looking at them. I said, "Did you start? Did you, did you start?" Mm-hmm. just so panicked. I mean, I was afraid because right. I had had it, I was so I was still so deeply connected to the pain that the surgery caused, and uh, I didn't realize that until they were about to stick a needle into me, and then when they did it, I didn't feel it other than the tiniest pinch, and it was not an issue. But like you, the emotional response completely took me over. And my reaction, one could say written on paper, there'd be no reason for an emotional response. But it brought up everything from the surgery. Right. And it completely took me over. I was embarrassed.
1: Yeah, I was too. Fact. Yeah,
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah but it's it's real it's uh you know so when i went in when i had the recurrence uh the metastasis to my liver when i went in for that surgery i pretty much just compartmentalized turned it all off and went in there with a positive attitude laughing and being cheerful and cuz i was just like i have to do this it's going to keep me alive and you know I, this wasn't conscious thought but in retrospect i could see that you know going into this surgery like I wasn't willing to make any space for the emotional response to the fact that I was having surgery because I knew post-surgery it would all be there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I opened my eyes and saw a nurse and reached out my hand to her and she kind of looked at me curious what I was doing and I, she took my hand and I just held her hand. That's I just nice. wanted a human connection because I was just like, here I am again. In pain. I said something to her. She said, sir, why are you whispering? I said, because it hurts to speak. The surgeon came in. He said, yeah, I used a tool to uh, pry your rib cage open a little more. So we've changed your meds. Yeah,
1: yeah, Wow. Wow. we
0: we changed your meds and uh, it should work soon and it worked fine after that. But the pain is incredible. It's, I mean, I'm struck by it right now. Just hearing you speak about it and telling you about my surgeries. Yeah, so would we want to go back in and have corrective surgery? And then they'll tell you, if you were to do it, Jason, it may not work. Right. There's always a possibility that this may not work.
1: Right. And I think for me at least, I've I've learned to to live a pretty good life with with the limitations that I've got now and and I'm okay with that.
0: Such as I can go to dinner or I can go to a movie, but I can't go to both.
1: Yeah, and, and I would say, you know, now now I, I might be able to do both. Um, I might eat a little less. There, There was, for literally the first four years after surgery, I didn't eat out unless I knew I could go straight home afterwards. If I went to a meeting... And there was, you know, food on the table for for people. I would not eat any of that food because I knew I could not get through the meeting without having to go to the bathroom. So I essentially didn't didn't eat out. And, if, and again, if I did, it was it was a restaurant near the house. And as soon as we were done eating, we went straight home. My husband and I had a had a routine on not every weekend, but probably every other weekend. We would we would go out to breakfast either Saturday or Sunday, and um, we would we would have breakfast, and then we would run some errands. You know, go to two or three different stores, and and then go home. And um, after cancer, that routine was not the same. Um, if we went out for breakfast, we had to go back home. There was no running errands. Afterwards, um, I just, I well, I one, I hate having to use public restrooms if I can get away with it, I, I'd rather be at home. Mm-hmm. And two, because of the length of time that I would be in the bathroom, you know, I don't want someone else waiting on me, you know, in a public area for 30, 40, 50 minutes. Yeah, definitely some adjustments in your life.
0: Yeah, for me. Once I had the colostomy, my relationship to food also changed, but it was because when I pass gas, I can't control it. So my relationship to food changed completely when I was in public. Like, you know, oh, it's a uh, cream of broccoli soup. Yeah. <laughs> I would look at my wife and go, that's fart soup. Yeah. Yeah. And fart casserole, (laughs) fart pate, (laughs) just like all these foods. There's no way I'm eating that because we're going to be in public for a while. I still have to be mindful of eating gassy foods. You know, I should like own stock in Beano or the the generic (laughs) Beano company that are stuff that I buy from the store Uh, because I I regularly take, uh, um, uh, you know, anti-gas enzymes before Mm -hmm. I eat and if I'm say like you know I've gone to silent meditation retreats so I'll take the enzymes and I'll take a hydrochloric acid pill called betaine HCL to help with my digestion you know I've learned to only have coffee on an empty stomach because you know I wear a, a belt around my abdomen it's for a prolapse of the stoma, the stoma is the part of the large intestine that exits the body, and it, it uh, kind of likes to move out. So I wear a hernia belt, and that actually works as a muffler mm. for you know passing of gas, you know, in, in a, to a minor degree. But I've been in meetings before where passing gas really doesn't work. You know, we clearly have a cultural agreement in this country that you know, for most of us, we don't just pass gas openly in a meeting. Some people do. And uh, they're essentially my heroes at this point because <laughs> I have not found the, the courage to do such a thing. But it has happened in meetings that, you know, when in a meeting where I was upset with someone and, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a comfortable situation. I just passed gas yes right in the middle of the meeting. And uh, there's nothing I could do about it and except say excuse me and just continue. Um, now that I irrigate my bowel every morning, I can wear this hernia belt without much concern. But before I started irrigating, and my surgeon recommended I wait a year after surgery before I try it just to allow the bowel to heal. That first year, I had no belt that I wore around my abdomen. So if my bowel started moving in public, it could be noisy. And I did not want people hearing that sound. Yeah. So I didn't go into public unless it was going to be noisy and a silent room. Nope. And if I went, I spent the entire time tense. Mm-hmm. I mean, really tense and anxious and barely able to be present. And, you know, in a different conversation, you and I could be rolling on the floor laughing about this. But in this conversation, what I'm pointing to is that it it took up a huge amount of my life. Yes. And I bought what was called a B band that pregnant women wear around their pants when they no longer fit. They wear it around their waist to you know hold their unbuttoned pants on. So I'd go to uh, Target and I'd buy the smallest size B band and wear it around my abdomen to try to quiet my bowel. And I wore those for years. And then when the stoma began to prolapse, it would hang out like This is something I don't talk about because it always embarrasses me. It would hang out anywhere from, you know, normally it's about, you know, half inch to an inch. And at one point it was hanging like, I don't know, three inches, three and a half inches out of my abdomen. And it really freaked me out. My surgeon said, yeah, the large intestine, you know, only has, there's only a few places where it's actually attached. It's just kind of hanging and moving loosely.
1: Right.
0: And so he prescribed me the hernia belt. And that has made such a difference because it keeps it in. And uh, then it became a muffler
1: <laughs>
0: to reduce sound. So
1: you're you talking about, you know, having to navigate through different settings. Did that bring about feelings of isolation or feelings of... I guess what the kids these days call FOMO where, you know, you, you, you felt like I can't, I can't go there. I can't do that because of this. FOMO? Yeah. Fear of missing out. Ah, I know for me, that's, that, that was, that was a big part of it. But I, I really, I spent a lot of time at home because I didn't know when my bowels would act up and, and I didn't know, when it, where I might be, or, or it might be inconvenient to to have to go to the bathroom, and so I just stayed at home.
0: Absolutely. So, well, fear of missing out. Um, no, that was actually uh, overtaken by my fear of having to manage my bowels. Yeah. Uh, um, around people. So think Definitely. about this. Let's say before I was able to start irrigating my bowel, I and, and you know and there was a a learning curve for my bowel before it became accustomed to this process now i can go 24 hours without my bowel moving you know i wake up and it's kind of ready to for me to irrigate again uh it's beginning the the movement process but early on you know it would midday there'd be some movement there you know there'd be some stool in my pouch and prior to irrigating there was, you know, my bowels moved whenever they moved. Before surgery, you know, I was a person who would poop three times a day. I was not one of those fortunate folks who they wake up, they poop, and that's their day. I would eat, I'd poop. Very, very, very active system, you know. Have breakfast, I poop. Lunch, I poop. Dinner, I poop. Another meal, probably poop. <laughs> I just, you know, and so you know, there was that kind of just, you know, awareness throughout my day, but it was just, you know, there's always bathrooms everywhere. It's not something you have to think about, um, But if I went to your house and had dinner, and then all of a sudden my pouch fills up a little bit, I go into your bathroom, I empty the pouch into the toilet, and then I put on a new pouch, and I put the old pouch in a little plastic bag that comes with the pouches. But now, I don't want to put the pouch into your garbage can. Right. Because I don't want to put my shit into your garbage can. That just doesn't feel right. Mm-hmm. And then it's kind of like when a person puts a diaper into a bag, like it takes away a lot of the smell. But if I put this bag and double knotted it, you know, twist it up and double knot it and put it in your garbage can, a day or two later, you might start smelling something that smells like a diaper.
1: Yeah, And
0: that came from me. Right. I'm not going to do that. So then I would have a... I carry around a little uh, bag, a little like a little uh, little. I'm gonna call it a pouch, but that would get confusing. It's kind of like you know, I don't know. It, it's it's bigger than a wallet, smaller than a purse, and it has my extra pouches and uh, the wafers that that attaches to. The wafer attaches to my skin, and then the pouch attaches to that. It has the bags and everything in it. I'd it have some deodorant that I could put in there. There's also a carbon filter on the pouch. When I pass gas, you know, the smell wouldn't come out, but a little deodorant never hurts because the carbon filters are not 100%. They're like 99, but they're not always 100% effective. So I would walk out of the bathroom, and I would, you know, after tying up the pouch in this little bag, not wanting to put it in your waste wastebasket, you know, in a public bathroom, sure, but in someone's home, no. So then it goes into my little bag, Now, I don't want that sitting by the table. Right. And then there was just the shame around having a colostomy and having, again, because it makes poop the focus of the conversation. So there are times I wouldn't want to go to someone's house because if I had to change my pouch, I didn't want them to see the little black bag that I carried around because that would be an acknowledgement that I had a pouch. Now, at this point in my life, Jason... I don't care if anybody knows I have a pouch. Yes, I poop into a bag. And, th- and, and and that's just my life. But when it first started, there was a whole lot of shame around pooping. Yeah. And I think, you know, in our culture, that's not uncommon. But for me, it was just, you know, magnified. Of course. And so I wouldn't go to people's houses. I didn't go to people's houses unless we were really close. And even then, sometimes I'd get a little embarrassed. And it took a long time. And I still won't leave, you know, if my bowels move during the day, which is less common now, but, you know, we all have our moments. I still won't leave a bag in your wastebasket in your bathroom. I will carry it out and put it in my car or I'll put it in my little backpack and throw it in my backpack and stick it in a corner. And it won't smell because, you know, it takes a little while for odor to escape a tied sure. bag. But, you know, I'll put it somewhere else. But there's all these little things. I always have to make sure I have pouches with me.
1: I'm wondering, you said now it's, it's different. How long did it take you to go from that period of being so shameful of a bodily function that everyone does, but yours is doing it a little differently to just being this is what it is and whatever?
0: It took a number of years because I had, you know, maybe it was a six-week Recovery period, four to six weeks, something around there. And then I started uh, my six-month chemo regimen. So that put me into springtime of 2009. And then I was diagnosed with what's called a systemic atrophy. I'd been on the couch for so long that I would be exhausted just from you know walking down the street. Mm-hmm. And my muscles were incredibly weak. And so I had to go to physical therapy for months to get back to just being a normal, having a normally functioning body, you know. So there was all kinds of muscle exercises that I would do and I would walk to, you know, return to normal. And so that put me, so another six months of not going out and doing all that much. And so that put me into a, you know, 2009 in the fall Then I started looking for work toward the end of the year and my company I used to work for before I was diagnosed hired me and I was back to work in February of 2010 kind of forced into a public situation which ultimately was actually good for me because it was really stressful I was very anxious concerned about moving my bowels in front of my new supervisor who I just met In front of uh, my two uh, maintenance guys who I supervised, or any of the people who lived on there. I did property management, uh, senior housing. And, you know, I'd be concerned about, you know, my bowels making noise in front of all of them. But it kind of threw me back into the public life. And, you know, in retrospect, that was a good thing because I didn't suffer from FOMO. I didn't care what I was missing out from. I did not want to uh, have to deal with the embarrassment of my noisy bowels and so that would have been 2010 maybe by 2012 i felt relatively comfortable about the whole thing so maybe 4 years and then let's see so i started dating in 2000 and Thirteen, and fortunately, the women I dated weren't even phased by my pouch. But I was really concerned with the first woman I dated. I was so anxious, and she caught on, and she was like, "Hey, I really don't care." Now, there's all the concerns about being, uh, um, you know, a dangerous person to date because I've already had cancer twice. And then there was, you know, said, so do, you, do you, are you even interested in me? And then there was, you know, my bowels and my pouch and the whole thing. It's just, it took time. It took time. And uh, I'm grateful to be where I am now. And I put a lot of work into it and you know, really devoted myself to freeing myself from this. But yeah. I didn't force it, but I wouldn't allow myself to be owned by it fully, you know, just kind of finding a, middle ground to navigate moving forward but having compassion for myself and giving myself room to fail to fail and by fail i mean to uh to give in and <laughs> just go home and not want to be connected to people
1: right right so did I, I i'm i'm curious did it did it take a few sort of embarrassing moments to sort of have to go through all of those fears that you had about you know people noticing or people hearing and, um, and being embarrassed by that? Did it, did it take a few of those before you take it over or was it just a matter of time and just you being comfortable with, with, with you and the way that you are now?
0: It's a great question. It was both, you know, there'd be times that I would pass gas and, and I was still married at the time and I would tell my wife, you know, uh, oh my gosh. I cannot believe that just happened. She's like, what? I go, I just farted. She's like, I didn't even hear it. I'm like, are you lying to me just to be nice? She's like, no, like I didn't even hear it. And then I'd pass gas other times. She'd say, you want to know what? Some of the times that doesn't sound like farting. That just sounds like, who knows, just a noise of, the, of the, all the noises we hear throughout the day, you know? So mm-hmm. I got comfortable. And then there'd be times that I would pass gas. I'd say, excuse me. And then I'd say to myself, well, look at that. You didn't die. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's not uh it is not the end of the world.
1: I'm I'm glad that you mentioned dating because I I don't know how comfortable you are talking yeah. about this openly, yeah. but I think that has always been one of my one of my big fears of um if I ever had to have a colostomy bag being intimate with somebody and and just like getting over getting over that and 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 having a partner that is not phased by it, and um, if you're comfortable doing so, can you speak a little bit about that and and what it took for you and 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 just navigating that with 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 different people?
0: Yes, so that's a great question. I'm glad you asked. I'm happy to talk about it. In 2000, and I think it was 13, I dated, I think I dated four different women and uh, was intimate with each one of them. And what I noticed was, you know, occasionally I'll just look down and make sure my pouch is still staying on. i say probably more regularly than I think about it. It's just habit now. I don't even think about it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, back then, it was just, okay, make sure this thing isn't coming off because I don't want it to open up. Because it's going to, even if there's no stool in the pouch, which most times there wasn't, the stoma, the part of the intestine that comes out of the abdomen, it still smells like your bowel. So I wouldn't want it to open. Over time, I just realized that it's not a big deal to me. And the women I was intimate with weren't bothered by it. There was one woman, uh, she knew I had the pouch, and I took off my clothes and i was down to my underwear and a t-shirt and i took off my t-shirt and then took off the the belt the hernia belt and she just looked at me and she's like whoa 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 you can't just do that and instead of having compassion for her and recognizing that it was a bit of a hurdle for her i just said sure i can and then she just kind of shut down
1: mm-hmm.
0: and and she acknowledged that she shut down and uh in that moment, I had compassion for her because I recognized I didn't step into it slowly, and I think for me that's part of that's part of my personality. Like I've always been a shy person, and at a young age, how I learned to deal with my shyness was by just throwing myself into a public situation and saying, "Hi, how you doing? I'm Bert. Nice to meet you." And so when I get shy or uncomfortable, that's how I tend to, you know, navigate it. And that's clearly what I did in that moment, and it didn't work for her. And you know, a week or so later, the two of us went for a walk, and I told her, "If you had done that, <laughs> if if you were the first woman I dated after my marriage, you would have crushed me."
1: Yeah.
0: And and I laughed, and she laughed because it's not the case, and I was okay. But I get it. I get it. For some people, it's just it's a lot to see, and because the brain is doing all the computing, it's like okay, that's your large intestine, that's your bowels. Like wait, hold on. And so for all the women I dated except for her, no one shared any concerns or worries. And if someone were to find out that I had the pouch and it didn't work for them, I would be okay with that. You know, I might be disappointed if I really liked the woman, but it's, you know, we all can deal with what we can deal with. And it's not personal to me. It's not me. that It's just, you know, it's just that... The, the pouch, the colostomy it might just be, you know, confronting. It might be difficult for a person to deal with. But I don't have an issue with it now. Okay, and there's I don't wear the hernia belt when I'm having sex. And that allows gas to occasionally move out of my bowel. So occasionally I'll be having sex and I'll fart. And I'll look at the woman with me and say, whoops. And in the early days, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. And I remember a woman looked at me, she's like, dude, I really don't care. But it's, yeah, those are things to be concerned about. And again, if a person wasn't comfortable with any of that, what I would, you know, at most experience was sadness and disappointment that we couldn't be together. But I get it. I'm sure there are people that have body issues, body alterations <laughs> from surgery, you know, or, you know that might be difficult for me to navigate through.
1: Sure. So I'm, I'm curious... More for
0: myself getting through it. What are right. You curious it? Go ahead.
1: Yeah, I, I'm, I'm curious. Um, is the fact that you have a colostomy, does that is that something that comes up on the first date? Or is that something that sort of... Or does it vary depending on who the person is? Like, at, at what point do you sort of let the person know? If it, I mean, if you think it's going to lead to some physical intimacy, give them a heads up. Or how does how does all that work, Bert? That's great, yeah.
0: <laughs> so I have dated women who my friends know. And apparently a lot of people that I don't really know or just know, you know, from a, just kind of acquaintances, they know I have a colostomy. So apparently people share about it. And, uh, you know, when I was in my 20s, I knew someone told me like, oh, I met this person. They're like, oh, yeah, that person, they have a colostomy. Do you know that? I'm like, no, what's a colostomy. They told me all about it. Like people like to chat about those things, I guess. So, yeah, I, I guess it's. Public knowledge to some degree. Um, that said, I'm open about it. I don't hide it, so I right. think people are also comfortable saying, I, "You know, I'm, I'd love to be a fly on the wall. I'm curious what the conversations are." Maybe it's just uh, <laughs> curiosity. Who knows? No one's ever told me. But for me, I just share it when it seems appropriate. Like there'll be times that we will be, I've been, you know, sitting somewhere with a woman. And then I'll just kind of be pushing on my abdomen or whatever, and she might say, "What?" and I'll say, "Oh, I have a colostomy," and it just felt kind of weird for a moment, which is my, you know, code for I think I was about to pass gas and I didn't want to, but I don't want to say that to a woman I was getting to know. Right, <laughs> and she'll say, "Oh, you have a colostomy?" I'll say, "Yeah." Oh, I, I, I had cancer? You know, in two thousand and seven, and I just I'm just open about it, and I, you know, I imagine. There may be people who, when they hear that I had cancer, they're going to be like, whoops, nope. Not going to date someone who has cancer. Have I met someone who said that? No. But I'm open to it. You know, I'm not, I don't uh, have an issue with a person who wouldn't want to see me as a, as high risk. And I've had it twice. And so then that will come up. And if if we talk more about it, say, yeah, I've had it a couple times. And then maybe I'll make a little joke. like, yeah, I'm a... Uh, uh, I, I might be a little dangerous to date. I just have it show up naturally in the conversation as part of getting to know me. The same thing yeah. goes with the colostomy. One woman, we were starting to be intimate for the first time, and I just said, it's, "I want you to know, I got a whole very busy torso. There's a whole lot going on down here between my scars. <laughs> I have a colostomy." I got. She's like, "Okay," and then when she saw it, she just she didn't give it any thought.
1: So are people curious? Do they, they do they want to like look at it, examine it, or do they sort of want to just ignore it, do you think?
0: I have found later on in the dating process that women have been curious about it but didn't want to ask. Mm-hmm. Even though I was clearly comfortable with them asking, they weren't comfortable themselves asking. And I think, you know, if I had to guess, it's because it has to do with the bowel and with pooping and, sure, you know, if I had something coming out of my chest, you know, they might ask me all kinds of questions. <laughs> what is that? What's that for? Right. But it's a personal part of our life that you know we don't we don't talk about how we poop. We don't talk about how we wipe. That right. is personal. <laughs> That's private. Nobody wants to know.
1: <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly.
0: So I just let it uh, arise when it seems natural.
1: And I I can imagine that your comfort level can then breed comfort in the situation so if you are you know still uptight about it or uncomfortable or embarrassed by it it sort of makes the other person match that energy and and you know it it makes for an even more awkward situation but you know as you're describing it you're you're completely comfortable with yourself now and um i can only imagine that that also brings your partner or whoever you're interacting with, whether it be someone who's intimate or just a, a friend, it, it, it brings comfort level to the whole situation and sort of allows them to match that, that comfort energy. Does that make sense? It does. I
0: know from times in my past that when I was uncomfortable with my pouch, you know, people were visibly uncomfortable. In a, in response, in acknowledgement, you know, to my being uncomfortable, you know, whenever a person gets uncomfortable with a situation, you know, we either just kind of intentionally step over it and ignore it as a courtesy to them, to not try to draw attention to it, right? Or mm-hmm. if it's obvious, then we just find our own way to be supportive. not make it worse right and then we have our own levels of discomfort and all the thoughts going on in our mind and how we don't want to add to it or you know whatever it's bringing up for us so yeah when i would get uncomfortable other people would sometimes do the same if they were friends you know they might chime in and say hey bert like don't worry about it you know it's um, right and, you know, when early on, I'd say, oh, well, I'm not worried about it, which is, you know, your way of saying, I'm incredibly worried about it. And I don't even have the courage to admit that I'm worried about it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right. Right.
0: Yeah. So, yeah, there's, there's so many ways of finding my way through.
1: And do you feel your cancer experience has sort of helped you navigate in other areas of your life in a, that have nothing to do with cancer? like lessons learned or, or, or things that you, you learned about yourself during your cancer experience that you've been able to apply to different areas of your life?
0: So in the area of confidence and self-love, it has definitely provided me an efficient curriculum to self-growth. Uh, you know, I had to learn to not have my confidence be based on how other people were responding to me. How so? By noticing how my confidence had been based on how others were responding to me. And to get that, you know, my body is the way that it is. And I noticed, I was on a silent retreat and I was noticing the noise of other people's bodies. And when you're on a silent retreat, it brings all of your judgment and evaluation and everything to the forefront of your mind. And it can become quite difficult. Uh, You know, I I raised my hand and went and sat with the teacher. I'm like, I'm sitting here judging everybody. I'm judging everyone in the room for everything. And she was able to direct me to see how that's, you know, what that was. It was just a projection of my own self-judgment. So I noticed that I judged the noises people, people's bodies make. And I'm like, okay, so clearly I judge myself around the noises my body makes. Mm. And when it came to self-love, what I really realized it got clear for me. For me, how I experience it is that self-love is getting that there's nothing to fix about myself. And that's my physical body and all its noises. That's the times when I communicate with someone and I do a bad job and then I have to apologize or choose to apologize because it didn't go well and maybe it hurt their feelings. I was a little reactive and wasn't thinking clearly. And so how cancer and this colostomy provided that for me is that the way to go through my life and not have shame or embarrassment or concern about the colostomy or about the fact that I've had cancer twice and could be a high-risk date, and all of that is that it had me eventually accept myself. And then that had me have compassion for myself, which then had me have a lot more compassion for the world. Because as we soften to ourselves, you know, we soften to the world. And it's made living in this world easier because I recognize that there's so much I'm dealing with as a human being, you know, that when we max out on what we're dealing with inside, we project it out onto the world. Perfect example, you know, we're in the coronavirus right now. And mm-hmm. it's and, and it's difficult emotionally and we're a lot of us are isolated and there's so many things we're not doing. And you go out I go out in the world to the grocery store. And people are getting near me and they're not being mindful of this six-foot space. And I'm wearing a mask and, and, you know, and uh, keeping my hands sanitized and spending as little time and going as infrequently to the grocery store as possible. And someone's getting in my space and starts walking towards me. And then I get annoyed at that person. And after I left the store, what I realized is, well, Bert, you didn't feel comfortable speaking up when that person got within six feet of you and kept walking. So you got upset with him. But that's because you didn't want to have to get uncomfortable and say, hey, could you please stop? Because that's a socially awkward thing to do. And there's a big learning curve right now. And I don't want to be the one who's after teaching so can teach somebody. (laughs) Then they get embarrassed and they say something short to me. And then there's this whole thing. Did any of that happen? No, I have no idea if it would have happened because I didn't bother. When we get maxed out, with what life is providing, we start projecting our upset onto others. And when I had to deal with my colostomy and farting in public and not wanting to use people's bathrooms and, you know, going to the beach and like for five years after my, my recurrence, you know, I had a hepatic artery pump the size of a hockey puck in my abdomen because that was a secondary form of chemotherapy that I received in addition to the chemotherapy that was pumped into my veins and I had a port in my chest and that was in for five years. So I had a pouch, a hepatic artery pump in my abdomen, I had a port, all these things were protruding from my skin. I had a huge surgery, uh, um, a scar down my abdomen. And I just kept being invited by life to not judge my own body and my own self. And as I said, as I stopped doing that, I stopped judging others. And when I've been in moments of the deepest amounts of compassion for myself, it's when I have the most compassion for the world. And that is why, and I will say this drives some people crazy, but that is why I'm so grateful that I had cancer. Not that this damn disease just knocked me around and And had me fear for my life and go through radiation and chemotherapy and surgery, then more chemotherapy, then more surgery, and all the emotional struggles that we go through. But that, it had me recognize how much of my life was controlled by my fear of interactions with others and how it would go. And I think as a combination of growing up and getting older, but also having this diagnosis. I was like, you want to know what? I am who I am and I have all Mm -hmm. kinds of faults and I have all kinds of strengths and they make me exactly who I am and I wouldn't be myself without the person who occasionally says something that hurts someone's feelings and I wouldn't be myself if I wasn't the person who had the capacity to coach people who are going through difficult situations and be available to them. It's all part of the package and it's not something for me to wish hadn't happened because I can't change it and that's where a lot of my freedom came from was the fact that I can't do anything about this if I could do something about it then I'd get upset but like you know that's a little bit of a generalization because you know like when I got diagnosed sure there were times I would get upset but the trajectory that I was on always would return to gratitude and a recognition that you know don't get upset about what you can't control you know how about you?
1: I resonate with, with that so completely. And, um, you know, I think certainly while going through treatment and radiation, as we already discussed, was like the worst part of our treatments, you know, there were there was a lot of crying. There was a lot of mm-hmm. praying to God saying, you know, why me? you know i'm a good person why did you do this to me like you know there was a lot of that yeah. a lot of it but there was also a recognition uh, and and certainly just a a spiritual faith in in myself that that i really leaned heavily on that something was waiting for me on the other side of of mm. this cancer and i, I didn't agree. know what it was and and i I just sort of allowed myself to believe that this was the price of admission. Like this, this is what I had to go through to, to get to wherever I was going. And it feels horrible right now. Um, But it won't always be this way. This is, this is temporary. Everything in life is temporary, right? So I just sort of held on to that belief with, with with no proof. I mean that's what faith is, right? Mm-hmm. And and you know, maybe I get a sign here or there that sort of um bolstered my faith. But certainly like you, I'm 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 grateful. I'm I'm grateful not only um to to be alive and to be on, on the other side and have no evidence of disease and to to to, to be healthy but I'm I'm actually grateful for this horrible thing that happened to me. I, I, I wish, I wish it, it didn't have to happen. I wish that I could have reaped all the benefits um, that I've recognized in my life um, after cancer without having to go through cancer. But it doesn't it doesn't work that way, right? <laughs> you know, it's yeah. life is this two-sided coin. You have to take the negative and the positive. You, you cannot take one without the other and and also you and this is this is easier said when there's time and space from the the traumatic event but you can't just focus on the negative while you're going through this horrible thing it, it, it will crush you and, and find whatever little little thing that you can hold on to, to get you through those negative times, those, those really, really hard, difficult times. Um, and just, just hold on to that. And I think certainly through, I, I certainly I've met a lot of people, um, that are dear to me, um, and that I wouldn't have met had I not had cancer, our lives would just wouldn't have intersected. And, um, and I I really believe that, you know, people enter each other's lives for for reason, and we sort of can bounce off of each other, our our energies sort of bounce off each other and sort of just slightly redirect where we need to go. And, and I'm I'm grateful for the people in my life that sort of have bounced off of me and, and guided me that way, and 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 I bounced off of them and guided them to to a better life for them. And my husband died two and a half years ago, and um, I I wouldn't have thought this, but my cancer experience really helped me through my grief and my mourning of the loss of my husband. There was. There was a lot of similar feelings that I had. I I felt like, one, my life instantly changed. Cancer was never part of my life plan. I did not plan on my husband dying the day that he died. Um, And and suddenly everything that I was worried about the day before didn't Mm. matter. Like the day before I was diagnosed with cancer... Uh, You know, things with work and this big project, this big contract with this big company that I just signed. That was my big thing. The day after cancer, I didn't didn't care about that at all. And it was very similar to, you know, the day before my husband died and the things I worried about. They just didn't matter. And it sort of allows you to reevaluate what you're doing in, in your life. And although it's a huge, huge disruption in your life. That disruption is also a freedom in some way. And I think it's a little early right now. You you mentioned that we're currently going through the the COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic right now. And it's probably too soon for people to really apply this. But I, I think it can be applied with time of this huge disruption, this huge difficult moment for all of us. Is also a time for all of us to evaluate where we're at in our life. And it can be, if we choose to view it this way, it can be something that gives us a sense of freedom that we get to, when things start to go back to normal, which normal is going to be over, right? Just like our life before cancer, it doesn't come back. You have to reestablish a new normal the life that i had before my husband died doesn't come back you you have to reestablish this new normal and and i think that our country and everyone in it is going to have to reestablish their own normal but that that gives us this new freedom that we we get to we get to decide we get to decide what we want our lives to look like we get to decide oh that doesn't work for me anymore that doesn't apply to me anymore. That's not how I want to live anymore. And it can it can be this 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 sense of freedom. And I think during during some really tough days after after my husband died, I really just I really leaned on the cancer experience. And and I I thankfully I, I sort of pretty immediately recognized that the feelings were similar. And it gave me comfort because I knew I had gotten through to the other side and reestablish a life that that was good and so that gave me hope during this really this time of such despair and not knowing what am i going to do without my life partner that i've been with for 19 years uh, that i Uh. that i i grew up with you know that's suddenly gone but i knew i was going to be okay And, and i knew that because in cancer i this part of me was ripped out I had I had to learn to redo these things. My life was forever changed. But I was still able to live a good life and that that gave me the that cancer experience gave me the strength that I needed through this other experience that had nothing to do with cancer. And there was an additional level of gratitude for having that cancer experience of thank you. Thank you for giving that to me so that I could have learned that lesson. So this part isn't so hard. That this part, I have something to lean on. I have this confidence in me that I'm going to be okay. And I, and I get to, in time, reevaluate what I want my new life to be. And though I miss my husband so dearly every single day, there is a sense of freedom. There is a sense of freedom that I get to, I get to redo a part of my life. You know, maybe my job doesn't work for me anymore. Maybe, maybe the things I was doing doesn't work for me anymore. It also allowed me to to learn how to say no more freely. But it, it just sort of gives you this space. You're forced into it by, you know, this isn't something you planned or a goal that you set. You are forced into it. But once you sort of accept that that's where you're at, it's a very freeing uh, feeling and empowering that you you have you have you have this God given opportunity to to redo the stuff in your life that just didn't work for you. And maybe that's that's too too over-the-top positive, but like...
0: No, it's inspiring, man.
1: Yeah, and, but that, that's, that's, that's really what, what, I, what I lived.
0: I love what you're pointing to. You said that when you were diagnosed with cancer, there's something on the other side of this. And that was a part of you before the diagnosis that, if not before, you got well-introduced to when you're diagnosed. And then your husband died two and a half years ago. And I cannot imagine the grief that came with that. And you remembered that there was something on the other side of cancer. And a part of you knew that there would be something on the other side of his passing. And right. then you referenced the coronavirus, COVID-19. you know, And you're acknowledging, again, there's grief. There are so many people dying right now. And if you've seen the videos of the hospitals like in New York City or in Italy, like my friend's daughter is in Brooklyn right now working in the hospital. I cannot imagine. I mean, heck, we're grateful we have people in the grocery store working right now Mm -hmm. so we can shop. And their exposure, they're high risk. Folks working in the hospitals, they're working with everyone who's got the virus that can't be at home. I mean, there's incredible grief. And yet... On the other side of that is a new culture, a new country, a new way of living. I just had a conversation, a coaching conversation with someone and she was acknowledging that in the company she works for, they're already noticing that they are operating, what, 90% right now with everyone working from home and they're already seeing where certain parts of their daily routine that we're costing them hours, costing them time and money, are completely unnecessary.
1: Yeah.
0: I continued that conversation with a friend later and thought about, you know, how there may also be, you know, there could be companies that are like, okay, we're going to have, you know, this percentage of our staff work from home from now on. And then what's going to happen? There are going to be people managing social isolation, and missing being at work and missing their commute because they don't have community. And, and that will be the next part of our growth. Sure. And there will be grief in that as we find our way through. But what you pointed to is that what each one of these struggles brought you and the key piece being that you knew that there was something beyond this. this you weren't just stricken with these circumstances. You were being in, in the context of living a life that you are committed to growing in and developing and experiencing love and gratitude that there was going to be growth and gratitude on the other side of it and it's you know that's that's the human mind right like to say like you know that i went through this terribly painful loss and yet some wonderful things came out of it you don't want anyone to have to go through that right you wouldn't wish it upon yourself. You wouldn't wish it upon your worst enemy, I would hope. (laughs) And yet, we grow from it. You brought to my mind how, you know, I cried before I had cancer, but the first time I was diagnosed, I was diagnosed in 2007. And uh, for those listening, the reason I didn't start surgery and chemo until 2008 was I uh, spent 10 months doing an alternative treatment because... To put it bluntly, I wanted to save my ass. I did not want a colostomy. So I tried an alternative detox therapy and it kept the cancer from going to, from stage two to stage three, but it didn't keep it from growing slowly and eventually the pain became so intense that after many conversations with my wife, I eventually uh, went and did a traditional treatment. But in that whole process, you know, the crying was uncontrollable. There were times it would just, you know, take me over. And, uh, as you mentioned, you know, there was a time that I was just feeling crushed and hopeless about cancer and, you know, the kids were home and my wife was home. So I went into the bathroom and I started crying and then I just kind of sunk down to my knees and was crying. And then I started praying that I would live. And then I started begging and I'm sobbing and begging to God, like, please let me live. And even that, that's not something that I don't want to remember, that I don't want to feel again, I mean, experience again, no. But like, that was a passionate expression of life. Mm -hmm. And tears are a passionate expression of life as much as laughter and joy. No, no, I'm not, you know, I'm not living in in a magical mindset. I don't want to be on my knees sobbing, begging for life. And after it was over, I could see like, yeah, that's part of the experience. That's part of living. That's not something to not experience. That's not life not happening well. That's not life going wrong. That's life. That's, that's a piece of life and, and, and it's precious and it hurts and it's terrifying. But life, if you look around, is full of preciously painfully terrifying experiences that happen all the time it's people say well why is that happening like well maybe that's not i'm not saying i like it but it's it is part of this world and we will always at the same time push for these things to not happen for people to not have to have pain and suffering but it's part of the package and crying became a daily practice for me and I would cry tears of joy and laughter. I'd cry tears of sadness. I'd weep if I saw something happening in someone's life that made me sad. But I found a relationship with crying that wasn't... Crying stopped being wrong. Yeah. Crying became part of self-expression. And so now, if you know, I was in my studio... I was blowing glass, I had hot molten glass in my hand, and I'm talking with my shopmates, this is early on while we were still working, and I turned to my shopmate, it was on the Friday, I think, that Governor Cuomo said, I'm telling all essential workforce to no longer work as of, you know, Sunday, whatever that date was, March something, and I turned to him, and I was talking, and suddenly I started crying. And he's like, oh, buddy. And he goes to give me a hug. And I'm like, oh, shit, we just hugged each other. Like, we're not supposed to do that. (laughs) And then, like, you know, within 10 seconds, it was over. But it was just, I'm so grateful that, like, the crying happened. There was grief. Like, okay, this is real. And I'm so happy that the emotion is being expressed, that the crying is able to happen. Because if it doesn't happen, grief is going to express itself in one way or the other yeah and I, I I believe that grief will express itself in physical illness if we don't express it so it's wonderful you know all the things you talked about from your cancer to the loss of your husband to covid nineteen like there's grief in all of it, and I hope yeah. that people are if they haven't had it, i hope they're finding the capacity to express the grief and to get that no you're feeling this grief, you're crying there's nothing wrong with that it's actually a, a healthy expression of a in response to what's happening to our lives, to the world.
1: Yeah. And certainly having all the, the positive thoughts of gratitude and and all that stuff. That's not, that's not how it always was a hundred percent. Like, like I said before, life is this two-sided coin. You take the, the negative and the positive. So like right now dealing with all the shutdowns and the quarantine and all just the, the unknown about our, our future. There's a lot of anxiety I'm feeling right now. There's a lot of sadness. There's a lot of grief. There's a lot of mourning. There's a lot of just being scared. Um, but there's also, there's gratitude. There's, I'm, I have a home, I, I'm, I'm healthy. I have, I have the ability to work from home. Like there are a lot of good things that I'm gonna be okay. We're all going to be okay. This is temporary, and um, I, I, it's obviously harder in the moment. So, like right now, maybe I don't have a lot of the. I can't see a lot of the good stuff from, from the coronavirus, mm-hmm. but I have faith because of the death of my husband, because of the cancer, because you know those those experiences have taught me that yes, you go through this period of there's lots of grief, there's lots of. Sadness and and anger and confusion and fear and and then you get to this place where it's like oh, I actually needed that. I hated going through it, but I actually needed to be here. And um and then you you feel you feel grateful for it. You feel grateful for that experience. And like I said, it, it, and right now there is this collective because normally we're just each individually going through our lives and we have these dramatic and traumatic events happen. And, and your dramatic and traumatic events don't necessarily coincide as far as the timing of, of mine, but now we're all, we're all in this together, right? We're all experiencing these same feelings together. And, and I think that that allows us to sort of be connected in ways that, that we weren't before. Um, it allows us to, to lean on each other in ways that we may not have done before. And it also allows us to have the discussion of what things do we want to leave behind? Now that, now that you know, we've essentially, life has been put on this dramatic pause, not planned, not, this wasn't a goal that we had. How do we want to emerge from this? And I think it's a... It's a it's obviously a relevant discussion in in that aspect, but like I have experience in this because, because (laughs) of the cancer and because of, of my husband's death. Like, so I'm sort of waiting for that, that phase where we collectively can start talking about, and some people are um, talking about, okay, well, what do we want our healthcare system look like? What do we want our, our, um, our social safety nets to, to look like. And I think those, those discussions are healthy and, and hopefully it'll bring about something positive. And, and, um, but right now it's going to be really hard. It's, it's hard watching all the, those numbers just keep going up, the number of cases, the number of deaths. And then, then when I think about those deaths, those people are dying alone. They don't. They're not having their families. Or their families can't be in the room, and then their families can't hold a funeral for them. The the bodies are in refrigerated trucks. That's terrible. Like like it's it's overwhelming. It's overwhelming. Sadness and and I can't imagine. And I hope I hope to God that I I don't have to experience that directly. I hope that someone I love and care about and know is is not affected by this but chances are it will and um it's just really hard right now for 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 all of us i think sorry i sort of derailed the the cancer conversation into that but
0: you know in some ways it relates we're, we're talking about when we're talking about cancer and everything that we have gone through we're talking about life you know, there's there's really no, it, it brings you into every aspect of your life. And there's nothing that we talk about when it comes to cancer that hasn't touched some part of our life. And you had me thinking like, you know, if someone I love was alone and dying from this virus, I'm like, okay, where could I get all the garb and put it on and seal myself up and look like medical staff and sneak in there and be like, this person is not dying by themselves. You know what I mean? It's just the it's the kind of thinking that's coming up as you're talking about it. It's it's tragic. It's heartbreaking. And as you said, I do look forward to the growth of us as individuals and us as a country and a culture. I'm hoping that people start to notice what we don't need in our life that we thought we needed before COVID-19. Yeah. You now I used to do all these things, and I've actually found myself happy, I'm enjoying my alone time. You know, for myself, I would used to walk regularly, and then you know I'd hike, get exercise, and then I kind of started not walking so much, and then I pretty much just stopped. And this, this, uh, where are we now? We're in the springtime. So you know, in the spring, I started walking a little bit more on my lunch break, but since this virus started, and I started getting anxious and concerned, I feel it build up in my body. Uh, When my father was dying, my siblings and stepmom and I were all sitting around him. And every once in a while, I would just start crying. And I would feel all the ache and tightness suddenly release from my body. And I noticed the pattern. And so then when I'd feel the ache and tightness in my body, I'd be looking at him. I'd presence myself to the grief and the pain of losing him. I'd start sobbing. And all the pain, all the tightness and the aching in my body would go away. (laughs) <laughs> it almost seemed a kind of a little bit, uh, you know, impersonal. You know? I was like, you know, making myself cry to make this ache go away. And when this self isolation began, and hearing all the news about all the loss and the pain and the concern about my financial future, I would feel this tightness in my body, and I'm like, you know, now this isn't crying. This is the need for movement. And I'm now walking two to four miles a day, joyfully. Mm -hmm. I I haven't made time for that kind of walking in my life prior to COVID-19. Every day now I'm walking two to four miles and it's making such a difference. It's having me live differently and I do look forward to how people will live going forward and what we'll take away as a culture. In the times of greatest struggle, you know, that's when human beings tend to uh, become some of the greatest people, you know. We do some of the greatest things in our greatest struggles. There will be much beauty that comes out of this once we get through it, for yeah. sure. So I'm glad you brought it up because they're they're very similar. You and I have kind of been trained, right? And and hopefully, staying open and and continuing our commitment to you know growing, we are going to get trained in
1: this too, right?
0: May I ask you a question about your chemo?
1: Sure, ask me any question.
0: Yeah, just wanted to make sure there wasn't anything left you wanted to say about no, no, this. Okay, great. Um, You took oral chemo, and I was offered oral chemo, mm-hmm. and I was offered uh, the systemic chemo, you know, the intravenous. And I heard about some of the side effects from the oral chemotherapy, like skin can peel from the palms and from the heels, and that just scared me half to death. I'm like, nope, not doing that. And I went with the intravenous. So I'm curious what it was like for you. What were the pros, what were the cons of taking an oral chemotherapy?
1: So initially... Um it was planned that I was going to have um, it, it, chemotherapy that was going to be infused and um,
0: infusions. Uh, yes, that's what it's called.
1: Yeah, and so I, but I had already planned to get a second opinion, and um, the oncologists here, rightly so, advised me, "Look, if you're going to get a second opinion, please do, but go get a second opinion from." An oncologist that only does colorectal. Um, you know, my oncologist here in Ithaca was a general oncologist, and, and he said, if you're gonna get a second opinion, you should get someone who only deals with colorectal cancer. So that's what I did. And when I had my second opinion, she agreed with everything, uh, the treatment plan. That my local oncologist had come up with, except for the the route of the chemotherapy, and she said, "I would in your situation, I would recommend oral chemotherapy. The studies have shown it's it's just as fec- as effective, and you know it's it's easier to 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 do, and it's it's for some people it's less side effects." And I didn't even know that taking a pill was an option. Hmm. And I was like, well, if it's, it's the same, I, for me, it was like, who wouldn't choose a pill? Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So I went back to the local oncologist and I said, look, you know, here's what she said. But I also, I deferred to him. And I said, if you feel strongly about me doing infusion rather than doing it by pill, I will go with what what you what you say, and and he said no. I don't feel strongly about it. And I said okay, pill it is. So the side effects that I had within just the first few days, I did develop uh, mouth sores, and um, so the oncologists encourage you to report your side effects immediately. Whatever side effects that mm-hmm. you are having, whether it be from radiation or chemotherapy, report them immediately. Um, because oftentimes there are ways for them to mitigate them and it can be with additional prescriptions to, to help with the symptoms, or it can be, you know, maybe they need to lower the, the dosage of your chemotherapy, or if you're getting it infused, maybe they need to lower the rate at which it gets entered into your body. Um, so that, that's always important to, to let your doctors know about that. So, so I did. And I got a prescription for this mouthwash, and within just a couple of days, the mouth sores were gone. They never came back. And the only other thing that I really, um, the side effect that that was, I guess, bothersome was was I had started to develop neuropathy, and it was towards the end of my treatment. And different people experience neuropathy differently. Some people have sensitivity to heat or cold. Some people, if they get neuropathy in their feet, f- describe uh, walking on clouds. For me, it was it's it started my fingertips, and what for me what it felt like is if you'd ever cut your fingernails a little too short, and you sort of like cut into the meat of the the nail, you know what I'm talking mm-hmm. about, and then the, like, oh, your yeah. finger your fingertips hurt for a couple of days, right? So that's what it felt like to me, and I have. A job where I'm at my computer all day and I'm typing and it was like with every touch of my finger down onto the keyboard, it, it was just this intense pain. Oh my goodness. And so I reported it and um, like I said, it was, it was kind of towards the end of my treatment. And so my doctor actually ended my treatment two to three weeks early. As soon as I reported the neuropathy, he ended the treatment. He mm-hmm. said, it's not worth doing an additional two to three weeks when you've already done several months of this because neuropathy can become permanent. So he stopped treatment, and thankfully, in a couple of weeks, the neuropathy went away. And so I'm very, very fortunate that I... That was pretty much the only two really big side effects that I had from the chemotherapy Um, was there
0: nausea and
1: you know so feeling most of my nausea came from the radiation
0: how many weeks of chemo did you do
1: so i had i did five and a half weeks of radiation and i did oral chemo during that time and then there was a six-week break where i did nothing and then i did four months of additional oral chemotherapy so total like five and a half six months total and you didn't have a lot of nausea from it you know, occasionally, but most of it came just during the time that I had radiation. When I was having radiation, I, oh, I lucky was, dog. I was very <laughs> nauseous, and I would get sick over just smells. But once the radiation ended, I felt like, for the most part, uh, things were okay. With I didn't have a lot of the side effects from from the chemotherapy alone.
0: I was uh, on. 6 months of post surgery chemotherapy
1: and I was laid out. I was on my back. I was miserable,
0: so sick. But the neuropathy for me was different. It was a tingling sensation and in my hands and in my feet it felt like I was walking on you know round stones that had a layer of like cotton balls on top of it. Something like that. You know, it was an odd it was like a could tell there was like a little insulation between the experience of what was between my feet and the ground. When the tingling started, the first time I had my first diagnosis, my oncologist uh, changed the cocktail. And then, the second time I received chemo for my second diagnosis, I had a different doctor, an oncologist in more Memorial Sloan Kettering, and she changed the cocktail and reduced a certain part of the uh, chemo so it it wouldn't get worse. As you saw a uh, colorectal oncologist, it's nice when you get to connect with them because they see so much of it and they have so much they can provide you. Even as something as simple as her saying to you, oral, systemic, you know, whichever one you want is fine. Right. I'd heard this woman telling me how... uh, the skin was peeling off of the heels of her feet. And I was just, <laughs> that was enough for me. I said When I was told there was a possibility of that, I'm like, done, check, please. No, thank you.
1: Yeah, but it, when they give you the list of side effects from the systemic chemo, I mean, that's a long list. When they give you this list of possible side effects from radiation, sure. it's sure. a long list. And of course. not everyone's going to experience every side effect and, and every medication has side effects and 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 some people experience them and others don't and um yeah i i could certainly see how that that would scare you away i i guess thankfully i uh i didn't didn't know anybody who had done yeah my type of oral chemotherapy so i didn't have any um horror stories to to steer me away and i think for me when I so when I was first diagnosed and I first met with the surgeon, I was told, "Hey, I, I think I could this, I think this can be cured from surgery alone, and depending on these certain factors, um, a lot of it had to do with the size of the tumor, if if it's, you know, and the clean margins that you get from from surgery." But he he said, "You know, there's a possibility that you won't even need to have." chemotherapy or radiation and in my mind it was just like oh well then this isn't cancer like this is just Mm -hmm. i'm just going in just for (laughs) for surgery and i i've had other you know minor surgeries before this is i got this this isn't really cancer because i won't have to have that that experience of poisoning your body yeah and so i was um I was so confident that, you know, after the surgery and they came back and they said, your lymph nodes are clear, because that was another thing. He said, you know, if it's not in your lymph nodes, then surgery alone will be fine. And when they said your lymph nodes are clear, I just, I was cheering and, you know, in my hospital bed, it's just cheering. And I I was so happy. And, but then the very next day, uh, the surgeon came in to my room and handed me a piece of paper and... And he said, I, I'm recommending that you have chemo and radiation. And and I, I just felt like, you know, hey, buddy, that wasn't part of the deal. <laughs> the deal was if lymph nodes were clear, if you got clear margins, that, you know, I would just have surgery and be done. And that's when I, you know, after I was finally discharged from the hospital, I, I went home and started doing research on stage 2A colon cancer. And... Everything that I researched had said that in most situations chemo and radiation wasn't wasn't needed, that surgery alone would be fine. And when I met with the oncologist, that was the information that I was armed with. Mm-hmm. And that's when he told me, well, actually, it's it's rectal cancer because of the the tumor placement. And because it's rectal cancer, your chances of the five-year survival rate that they do most statistics on is, is different. And, and here's where you could be with, with chemo and radiation. And that was sort of devastating news to me because suddenly suddenly I had, I had to face the fact that this actually was cancer and then i was going to have to poison my body and and i was going to have to go through all the things that you think of when you think of cancer and i think another reason why i was so motivated by by the, the pill option was seeing the people in the infusion suite getting their chemo i didn't i didn't want to be that person i didn't want to be i didn't want to be sick i didn't want I didn't want to sit in a chair for eight hours and just, it felt like I, and I feel horrible saying this because, uh, you know, I now know many people with cancer and I'm much more comfortable with it. But at the time, I didn't know anyone with cancer and, and hadn't really had a lot of people with cancer in my life. And it was scary. It was scary to see these sick people. And it just was like a room of death to me. And, um, and as far away from that as I could be, that's where I wanted to be. And so if, if taking a pill was, was an option, then that's what I was going to do. And so I was very happy when I heard that that was an option for me.
0: Jason, when I first got diagnosed and I didn't know radiation was going to be part of my process, I was in a wheelchair because it's you know I was a patient there, so they were wheeling me around and mm-hmm. with my wife. What I don't know if they still call them orderlies, but the person whose job is to push people around in chairs, you know, I said yeah. I need I need to go down to radiation. I need to get a, a CT scan, and he must have missed the CTs part. So he brought me down to radiation, where people got radiated for cancer. Mm-hmm. And when I saw where I was, I mean. I probably gave him hell with my face. I, you know, I tried not to with my words, but I, in my mind, I'm like, I am not one of these people. I am not someone who gets radiation. Like, get me out of here. The place was just like, like I was in a dungeon. I was like, no. I said, I need to get a CT scan. He goes, oh, 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 the ra- okay, I see. Yeah, radiation in the CT department. No problem. Then he brought me there. And I actually thought to myself as you were speaking, I was like, oh, no, you didn't go get to have the camaraderie and the connection with the fellow chemo patients, or cancer patients, and, and everybody getting their chemo, and the nurses, and the folks who come in and bring us nice things. And I was like, oh, you missed that. <laughs> <like>, How sad. <laughs> Because I looked forward to going, I it, okay, that is, right. let me, Let me. I looked forward to the connection that getting that very difficult infusion provided and all of the care. And that's how I met our uh, friend, Carrie. I met her. We were both getting chemo one day and uh, she and I became friends that way. And, uh, you know, there's nurses that I still see around town. And, yeah. But then, as you said, you know, you got to just do the chemo in the comfort of your own home, and not not have to, you know, drive to treatment. And
1: what well, I also think that I, I got some of the benefits that you're talking about through radiation. I think you know I did radiation every day for five and a half weeks, and the the radiation technicians there were phenomenal. Yeah, um, I instantly hit it off with each one of them, and they were so nice and so caring, and very, very professional, and the nurses that worked there and the radiation oncologist was wonderful, and, you know, if if I needed anything at any time, I could, you know, ask anyone, and they were just full of service. And after my treatment ended, I still, anytime I was up in that region near the hospital, I, I seriously would stop. I would stop. I would stop and walk into radiation just to say hello because I miss them.
0: Me too, with the chemo.
1: Yeah, and, yeah. and you know, it was, it was weird to, to not have them in your daily life anymore. And, and I, I just, I really, I missed them. I missed that comfort and I missed the laughs and the security that, that I felt with them, the safety that I felt with them.
0: Yeah, when I stopped going to chemotherapy, and said, okay, you're cancer free, ring the bell, congratulations, off you go. I would go back for routine checkups, and I would go back to the chemo infusion room, because I missed the connection. And I will talk with people about that who are going in for lots of regular chemo treatments. I'll let them know there's like there's kind of like a void when you're done. You know, you miss the uh, support and the care. Part of my personality, I didn't, you know, I felt demasculinized, um, emasculated when I got care uh, from the nurses and doctors. You know, they'd say, how are you feeling? And I wouldn't give them honest answers at first because, you know, I can handle this. And over time, you know, I started acknowledging okay this is the side effect I'm feeling this is how I'm feeling emotionally and uh, it was a learning curve you know and allowing myself to be honest about how I felt you know I you know grew up under the illusion in this culture that as a man you are strong and you push through things and I learned through my cancer treatment and through chemo especially what is this being a man even mean right you know, like I, I, I just, but in that time period, it felt emasculating, and I would say how I was feeling and what I was going through, and it was difficult, and it was worth it. I mean, since that time, you know, it's been many years, and I've come to not give a damn what being a man is. I'm me. And if I'm right. masculine to one person and not masculine to another, fantastic. Do with it what you will. I know that my my mind is constantly evaluating and judging. Um, whether I want to do it or not. You know, it's constantly chattering away, um, evaluating people, and I can choose to listen to it or not. But it was a it it was a uh, a difficult time in uh, finding my way through that and letting myself be cared for. And saying what I was actually feeling. Yeah. And, uh, you know, my wife was with me when they asked me what my pain was. And I said, no, oh, it's like a three. She's like, sweetheart, you're on like 10 milligrams of morphine a day. It took a while for me to learn to, to put it bluntly, to be honest about yeah. what I was going through.
1: I think our society and our societal culture does such a disservice to men mm. in in what you just described. Because... What you described, men are less likely to see the doctor sooner. It's it's something that they hide, or it's no big deal, or I can get through it, and and as a result, if it is a cancer diagnosis, it's it's often it's later in, down the line. As we all know, the earlier you can catch cancer, the better outcome you have, and you know the whole. Men don't express feelings. That whole thing—it's um, cancer can be isolating. Even 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 yeah. if even if you have the supportive community, even if you have the support of a of a loving partner, it's still isolating because it's 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 you that is happening to. It's um, you know you can have the loving support of family and friends, but it, it's happening to you. And um, they're, they're, and as we've discussed, the, there's so many emotional aspects to it. And if you're not already comfortable with expressing those emotions, yeah, I, I can't imagine what your cancer experience is going to be like, and, and you're still alone.
0: Yeah. It's only happening to you when it's your cancer. No matter what support you get, it's still you alone going through it with support. And if you don't speak about what you're going through, just be stoic.
1: Yeah. No thank you. Yeah. And there's no reason for it. And I think I I sort of feel, and and maybe this is uh, too optimistic, but I, I feel like there is sort of a, a cultural shift away from that and more Absolutely. towards, you know, that, you know, being able to cry, as you said, is, is just an expression of a self-expression of of life and, and, and that that's not, it shouldn't be viewed as not being masculine or, or being able to, to be in touch with how you're feeling is, mm. shouldn't be viewed as feminine or masculine or, right. And And even if it is, everybody's got a mix of masculine and feminine, like like yeah. it's okay. You, you, no man is going to be a hundred percent masculine. like it's okay to embrace that I, I'm me, that this is my mix, and there's a lot to to be gained from from being honest, as you said, of of how you're feeling physically and emotionally, and you don't have to feel so alone.
0: yeah. And that's really why I decided to do this podcast, because for starters, I want people to have the connection that so many of us have with the conversations we have with one another, because there are people who don't speak openly about what they're going through. And I want them to be able to hear the conversations we have and hopefully get some connection, Uh, hopefully walk away with some insight into uh, how to navigate a diagnosis and the treatment, I also want to contribute to the evolution of the cultural conversation about cancer, where we you know, address you know, some of the barriers to navigating a diagnosis well. And as men, we are aware of the masculinity barriers that can get right. in our way. I would, uh, you know, the nurses would be talking with me and the ones that I could, that I guessed and, you know, picked up on that it would be okay with, you know, I would make little, uh, you know, innuendo jokes about things they would say and they'd laugh and roll their eyes at me. And then one day I mentioned to one of the nurses, I said, you know why I do this? And she's like, "What?" Well, I go, I make all these jokes. I said, because I feel emasculated. Like I feel ashamed that I'm being fully cared for and telling you every little thing that I'm feeling and... She looked at me and she's like, first of all, I can't believe you're even telling me this, (laughs) but thank you. Thank you for acknowledging that. And, uh, you know, I want anyone who hears this to come away with something that forwards the cultural conversation about cancer and uh, gives them a little more freedom in their diagnosis. And uh, with each experience shared and question asked, you know, you asked me questions I hadn't thought about in years and... I hope that we can just continue to uh, bring more and more awareness to people, and create more connection as people go through this, whether it's the treatment itself or you know post cancer survivorship, yeah, whatever it is. Because you no, know, we don't want people to go through this alone. And as we acknowledge, there is a certain degree of alone that cannot be avoided because it's your di- it's you going through the diagnosis. But we can support each other. Thank you so much, my friend, for being on the podcast today.
1: Yes, it's been great. Thank you.
0: Really enjoyed this conversation. It's a, it's a privilege of mine that I get to have, you know, two-hour conversations with people about this because, you know, how often do we... We never, almost never sit down and talk this long. It's a, right. So I feel like I'm the lucky one, and I hope that uh, you are as appreciative Definitely I and that you got something out of this.
1: Definitely. Thank you so much. All right, Jason. Take care.
0: If you're from or you live in Tompkins County, the Cancer Resource Center of the Finger Lakes is there for you and your loved ones should you ever need them. They are a contribution to our community like no other. So please go to crcfl.net to make a contribution and learn more about what they provide cancer survivors every single day. Thank you so much for tuning in. I truly hope this podcast was of value to you. Please subscribe and let your friends and family know they can find But Seriously, the cancer podcast anywhere podcasts are made available. To learn more about my cancer survivorship coaching, go to bertscholl.com. That's B-E-R-T-S-C-H-O-L-L dot com. The intro and outro music you hear is the creation of Saint Kid. You can find him on social media as the Saint Kidd. See you all in the next podcast and thank you so much for listening. The purpose of this podcast is to provide a platform for individuals to discuss personal experiences with a medical diagnosis. The host and guests are not medical professionals and the podcast is not intended to provide medical advice or psychological therapy. Whenever there is a concern about mental or physical health, please consult a qualified medical professional.